0: Cannabis use is a hot topic, and cannabis use in older adults is a super hot topic right now. Older adults are using cannabis for sleep, for mental health, for appetite, for managing agitation with dementia disorders, for managing pain. Admittedly, I am naive when it comes to cannabis use in general, and then especially cannabis use for older adults. So today on the podcast, I invited Dr. Peter Grinspoon, a medical marijuana expert and physician, to help us understand the pros and cons of medical marijuana use and the risks and benefits. I'm Dr. Regina Kepp. I'm a board-certified clinical psychologist, and I specialize with older adults and families. I created the Psychology of Aging podcast to answer some of the most common questions I get about aging questions about mental health and wellness, changes in the brain, like with dementia, relationships and sex, caregiving, and even end of life. Like I say in my therapy groups, no topic is off topic. We just have to have a healthy way of talking about it. So if you're an older adult or caring for one, you're in the right place. Let's get started. Welcome to the 26th episode of the psychology of aging podcast. The topic of cannabis use in older adults is particularly timely. Even on Dr. Grinspoon's website, he talks about medical marijuana or cannabis soaring in popularity, especially among baby boomers and the elderly. But millions of people are finding it useful for chronic pain, insomnia, anxiety, PTSD, fibromyalgia, colitis, and many other conditions. And today on the Psychology of Aging podcast, Dr. Grinspoon will share with us the pros and cons of cannabis use in older adults, and even talks about cannabis use with adults with dementia. Let me tell you about today's guest. Dr. Peter Grinspoon is a primary care physician at Massachusetts General Hospital and is an instructor in medicine at Harvard Medical School. He's a certified health and wellness coach and is currently serving as a board member of the advocacy group Doctors for Cannabis Regulation, which works toward legalizing cannabis with an eye toward social justice issues. Dr. Grinspoon is also contributing editor to the Harvard Health Publications. In recovery from opiate addiction himself, he has been a national leader on the issue of physician health and has served as an associate director of the Massachusetts Physician Health Service where he helps physicians with addiction and mental health issues. He's the author of the memoir, Free Refills, A Doctor Confronts His Addiction. Let's jump right into the conversation. I'm so excited to bring this interview to you today. If you would be willing to talk a little bit about who you are and what you do and what led you to be interested in cannabis use in your profession as a a physician.
1: Sure. Well, I'm Peter Grinspoon. I'm a primary care doctor in Boston. And I've actually been, um, I'm at a Mass General Hospital and um, Instructor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. And I've been interested in medical cannabis my whole life. Uh, that's probably in part because my my father, who unfortunately passed away a couple months ago, was Lester Grinspoon, who was one of the leaders of the legalization movement um, for cannabis, medical and otherwise. So I was brought up with um, either proponents or um, opponents of medical cannabis in my living room my entire childhood. So I was, you know, either like smoking joints together or throwing things at each other. So I was like um, exposed to the issue my entire life. Part of it is that my brother Danny, unfortunately, passed away when I was eight years old. And he used medical cannabis uh, for his cancer-induced nausea and vomiting. Uh, My parents got it for him illegally at that point. This was sort of unrelated to my dad's research, but I sort of saw firsthand, um, how effective medical cannabis can be. And my whole family was very pro medical cannabis, um, just cause of my brother's experience. So I went through medical school residency, sort of immune to all the propaganda and nonsense that they typically teach or taught, I guess they'll teach doctors, um, about cannabis, um, You know, we really need to start from scratch and you know wipe the slate clean and you know really teach doctors, nurses, physicians' assistants sort of modern, updated knowledge that hasn't been tainted by eight years of the war, eight decades of the war on drugs about what cannabis really is, what the harms and dangers actually are, which have been wildly exaggerated. Though there are harms and dangers of any medication, and um, what the actual benefits are. So I've been interested in it my whole life. I've always uh, recommended it for patients for things like fibromyalgia or migraines, you know, things that are very poorly treated by Western medicine and things that are, you know, very well treated by, by medical cannabis. Um, so in a nutshell, um, I've, you know, I'm a primary care doctor who's always been interested in medical cannabis. More recently, I've become involved in the um, movements to legalize uh, medical and recreational cannabis. I'm a board member for the group Doctors for Cannabis Regulation, which is a great nonprofit group which helps both get doctors up to speed on cannabis and also um, helps uh, work on legalization. Because you know, living in in Massachusetts or California, you could uh, forget that uh, there's still a lot of places that don't have legal medical cannabis, let alone recreational cannabis, and there are still hundreds of thousands of arrests every year for cannabis possession, uh, which is absolutely crazy. So that is in a nutshell where I come from in terms of uh, my um, ex- my involvement with cannabis.
0: Wow. Well, thank you for sharing about your brother and your, your dad's experience. It's so rich and animated. Your brother, did he die as a child or as an adult then?
1: He died when he was 16. And, he was having such a hard time with the, um, chemotherapy. They, they didn't have some of the medications they have now, like a Dansetron. And, um, you know, he just couldn't eat, couldn't hold down food. And, um, they, uh, they tried, my mom actually not even known to my dad kind of surreptitiously went to my brother's high school of all places, Wellesley high school, this like, you know, the kind of, um, upper class, upper middle class suburb where we lived. And, Asked my brother Danny's friend to get some cannabis for him. And my brother Danny's friend, age 16, was like, what? I like, couldn't believe it. But then they smoked it without telling my dad. And my dad knew something was up because my mom and my brother Danny were acting suspicious. But on the way home from the chemotherapy, Danny was like, can we go get a sandwich I'm starving. And, you know, usually he's just like lying in the back of the car throwing up. So it actually worked really well. And it helped him uh, eat for the last year or two of his life. And it just made such a difference. And, you know, this is why, you know, oncologists aren't against medical cannabis at all. They're all completely in favor of it because they see how helpful it is to their patients. Now, this is one of the most obvious uses for it, is cancer-induced nausea and vomiting, one of the most clear cut but when the patient's benefit the doctors are in favor it's it's pretty pretty straightforward
0: yeah and what what do you suppose inspired your dad was it your brother's journey th- with cancer or did something else inspire your dad to become interested
1: well that's a long story but you know in short what he says is that he he was best friends with an astronomer a famous astronomer Carl Sagan And Carl Sagan used to smoke a lot of marijuana. And my dad was like, that's dangerous. You can't be doing that. And Carl's like, no, it's not. It's completely harmless. It's just propaganda. So my dad sort of wanted to prove that it was dangerous. So he went and did a lot of research on it. And actually, Carl was right um, in that it wasn't dangerous. It it was, um, I mean, you can't say it's not dangerous. You know, people who are pregnant or breastfeeding have to be very cautious. People... On other medications or who are prone to confusion, dementia, cognitive impairment, have to be careful. Um, You know, teenagers shouldn't be using it. But aside from that, it's it's a lot less toxic than a lot of the alternatives that we use. It's less toxic than opiates, which people get addicted to and can be very dependent on. It's less toxic than benzodiazepines that a lot of people use for... um, you know, for anxiety, which can be very habit forming and can harm your memory and can maybe even precipitate dementia. So, you know, when I say non-toxic, I mean, it's less toxic than a lot of the alternatives. So he tended to get interested in it because, well, one origin story is that his friend Carl Sagan, um, and he had a very big disagreement about it. Another is that he was concerned about what the youth were doing, all the hippies in the 70, 60s and seventies were doing, and he's like, "They shouldn't be doing this. This is really dangerous. I want to investigate it." And then he did investigate it, and when he did the research himself, he saw that a lot of it was really kind of uh, slanted towards harms, and very little was slanted towards benefit. And then when he looked towards, um, looked at the research towards harms, a lot of it was very uh, contrived, and that it actually had been used for thousands of years, very, very. Um, productively and not just for medical uses, but for, you know, sexuality, for creativity, for religion, for music, uh, for a lot of ways. I mean, um, you know, the, his book, Marijuana Reconsidered, is a masterpiece. It still is a masterpiece, even though it was written in 1971. It was reviewed in the front page of the New York Times Book Review. And, you know, it's just amazing uh, the history that this plant has and the, um extent that the extremes that our government and other governments have gone to kind of eradicate it, and they didn't do anything to eradicate it. All they did is put a lot of people in prison and ruin a lot of lives, but people are still using it, and I'm glad that it's finally becoming legal so that people will continue continue using it like they have all along without having their lives needlessly ruined.
0: right. You're so proud of your dad. It just comes out. Absolutely. It's so cool. Yeah. I that's so really really. Cool. Yeah, no, I had a
1: great dad. I mean, it was I got really lucky.
0: Mm. Yeah. How? What a beautiful thing. So I'm so curious. What are you noticing? Are some trends with cannabis use in older adults?
1: Well, first of all, the uses are going up. Uh, it's because of decreasing stigma, increasing availability, but um, the the percentage of elderly people, who knows what elderly is? I, I guess um, in this study, they defined it as greater than 65, but you look at your average 65-year-old and they don't look very elderly to me. But um, And don't I, identify as elderly. Yeah. Either, so. yeah. Uh, went up from something like um, 2.6 to 4.2 percent and is growing. You know, the, the study is always underrepresented because people are still afraid. They think the DEA is listening or, or something. But um, the trends are that it's the use is growing up going up because people are first of all hearing about it second of all they 're curious, and third of all they 're sick of their current medications I mean for pain, what are people going to do? you know Americans are getting like older and creakier you know they have knee pain, they have back pain tylenol doesn 't do anything you know non steroidals like your advil, your ibuprofen your relieve your naperson they if they don 't give you a heart attack they 'll destroy your kidneys. That's if they don't give you an ulcer. I mean, they, you can't be in those for long-term and nobody wants to be in opiates for so many reasons. We could spend the whole um, discussion talking about why you don't want to be in an opiate. Uh, That's, you know, they're addictive. They hurt your quality of life. So medical cannabis these days, you could be on it for on a low dose. There are different strains. It doesn't have to be all THC, which is the part that gets you high. There are other cannabinoids, other active ingredients of cannabis, like CBD, which is very popular and other ones that are being bred up. So you don't even have to be high or very high. And, um, if you can get off the non-steroidals and protect your kidneys, or if you can get off the opiates, or if you can get off your sleeping medications, which make you confused and affect your memory, um, or get off your muscle relaxants, which can make you confused and cause falls. Uh, people are finding great success with, uh, you know, polypharmacy is something which I'm sure you talk to your geriatric patients about all the time, the fact that they're all on 20 different medications. None of them want to be on 20 different medications. Um, And they all want to get off 20 different medications. Cannabis does about five things at once. It helps people with anxiety, sleep, depression, pain, and mood. And, um, it also helps people, you know, uh, connect with other people sometimes, you know, isolation is such a huge issue in the elderly. And, you know, I've had elderly people come back to me and say, yeah, my hip pain's great. And this is really fun. I'm painting again, or, you know, I'm going to the adult daycare center. Um, so people are finding it to be really helpful and not just in one particular facet of their life, but in a multifactorial way. And they're getting off these other medications. So, in you know, as long as they start low and go slow, I have them start at very low doses. I say, if you're going to make a mistake with the dose, make a mistake where you didn't take enough and you're disappointed. Do not make the mistake where you take too much, you get anxious and you have a bad reaction. I have them work their way up over a month um, just to be sure that they don't take too much. As long as they don't go into a dispensary get overzealous, say this brownie looks delicious and take a huge dose, they're going to be fine. So as long as they start really slow, um, work their way up really slowly with a low dose, um, they're going to be fine. And then they could gradually try getting off some of their other medications once they get accustomed to how it feels and um, get adjusted to uh, the effects because it does have a psychoactive effect and you do have to be careful.
0: Yeah. Just a minute ago, you were talking about populations, particularly older adults who um, might not, or this would be contraindicated. And you mentioned dementia. Can you talk a little bit about that? What I'm noticing is caregivers will dose cannabis or marijuana, really like gummies, edibles to folks with dementia who are agitated or having trouble sleeping, which is a common you know, issue with mid-stage to later stage dementia disorders. And so they're dosing this, but I don't think there's guidance around that. And so I'm curious what your thoughts are, what the contraindications are around that.
1: Right. Well, there's several different things. There's CBD, which is just one component of cannabis. Cannabis has like 600 different molecules. Now CBD doesn't increase your confusion and doesn't uh, have any, um, doesn't make you high or, anything like that altered, but CBD does help you with, um, anxiety and insomnia. So certainly CBD is low hanging fruit. If someone's agitated, Um, you know, the one thing about CBD is you have to be careful in that it can affect the levels of other medications that you're taking exactly like grapefruit juice. It can kind of compete for the enzymes in your liver that metabolize the other medications. So it can raise blood thinners or anti-epileptics. So you just have to be careful. I've never heard of anybody like bleeding to death because they're on a blood thinner and they take CBD, but you just have to be aware of it. So um, CBD is very low hanging fruit to someone who's agitated because what else do they give someone who's agitated? They give them these heavy duty tranquilizers. Now, would you rather your loved one be on a heavy duty tranquilizer, which is going to make them 10 times is out of it, or try a little gentle CBD. So I think that's very, again, low-hanging fruit to try. Now, in terms of cannabis, um, the, if CBD doesn't work, you want to try some THC, some something a little bit stronger, um, that absolutely might have an effect. But you, again, you're comparing it with these heavy-duty tranquilizers. They tend to give out um, you know, Haldol or Thorazine, whatever they give, to elderly, agitated, disruptive patients. They give it out like candy, and I'd rather see them on a gentle cannabinoid that would help them relax, feel a little bit euphoric, and calm down than have them completely drugged out on a major psychiatric sedative. So it's just a question of your perspective. I think there's a lot of potential in the cannabinoids, and I think that especially as... Uh, they become legal and we start exploring the other minor cannabinoids besides CBD. CBN um, is something that makes you really sleepy. And that's going to be a really important one. I think as we start raising up the different levels and raising down the THC, I mean, remember like when it was illegal, everybody wanted THC. So that's what got bred up. Now that it's becoming legal, we're breeding down the THC and breeding up all the other stuff. It's going to get much more interesting over the next five to 10 years. And we're going to have a lot more um, medicinal cannabis to work with. And I think it's going to be a lot easier. We're going to have a lot more uh, sort of um, tools in our toolbox to take care of situations like this.
0: What's well, so fascinating because I'll ask psychiatrists I know who work with older adults and and they'll prescribe quetiapine, for example, or Seroquel. And and then folks will come in and say, well, I'm also using cannabis or I'm also using CBD or THC. They don't really break down THC or CBD. Typically, people will say I'm smoking weed or I'm vaping or using an edible if they're even honest about it. Sometimes the person will be honest with me as, if they're, as a psychologist, but not honest with their psychiatrist about it because they worry that they're not going to get other meds if they're honest about you know, cannabis use. So what would you say then to psychiatrists or medical providers who are prescribing like Seroquel or Quetiapine, what what can they do to sort of get an accurate read on if their patients are using, a lot of providers listen to this podcast, senior care, mental health care providers, so how, I guess I have two questions for you. What can providers do to be sure that they are extracting the information that they need in a non-judgmental way so that they, that they get the information that they need and where can providers learn more about CBD and then, or cannabis use. And then where can, what can patients do to reassure them if it, if, at all, that it's okay to talk with their providers about their cannabis use. And maybe it's not okay. I don't know where that, the sort of right. field is at with
1: that. No, I, I get exactly what you're asking. Um, I mean, first of all, like psychiatrists have been so snooty and dismissive about cannabis for decades, and they've just sort of gone along with the U.S. government propaganda and and, and furthered it. And um, they've sort of, in this sense, painted themselves in a the corner because now patients don't open up to them exactly what you're, you're saying. And that's like the worst case scenario where you have like two different tracks. You have the psychiatrist prescribing quietipine, which I think is like an insanely dangerous drug. And it's like way worse than any possible side effect you could have with cannabis, but that's another discussion. Um, so, I mean, Quietapine can cause arrhythmias and weight gain, and it turns people into vegetables. Um, why on earth would you try that before you would try some CBD? I'm, I'm not quite sure. But um, so, first of all, we need to get rid of the snooty, dismissive attitude, or patients are never going to open up. I'm a primary care doctor. People open up to me because I am easy to talk to and I'm not judgmental. But if I, the minute I'm judgmental, they clam up. And if psychiatrists are like, you don't smoke cannabis, do you? They'll never say anything. So I think that part of it is to get rid of the snooty and judgmental attitude. But to do that, you can't just fake it or pretend or act. You don't like, so the psychiatrist shouldn't go to like their local acting school and learn how to act not snooty or dismissive. I think some real humility is in order. And, um, Humility is the cornerstone of being a good caregiver and a good provider, and that is sorely lacking in the medical profession and in most of the caregiving professions. Um, I think I have humility because I am in recovery from an opiate addiction. So being in recovery from an addiction is a great way to get a dose of humility when you manage to screw up and then put together your life. But a lot of people don't have that opportunity, nor would I necessarily recommend it to them. So, um, but I think that they need to just. Be humble about the fact, the psychiatric profession, that they completely got cannabis wrong, and they need to relearn it from scratch. I mean, they were just wrong about it, and they just feasted on the NIDA funding for harms. And you know, a study just came out that we've funded harms over benefits twenty to one. And we should have been looking at benefits all along. I mean, as my my late father used to say, we spent so much money, $10 billion or so looking at harms. It's actually proven that cannabis is a relatively non-toxic medication because they spent so much money looking for harms and they didn't really find that much. Um, but the psychiatrists need to sort of, you know, re-educate themselves and be humble and try to understand and be empathic about why so many patients are in favor of medical marijuana. Like 93% of Americans are in favor of legal medical marijuana. The patients are leading and the doctors are following. And I have to say the psychiatrists are following the rest of the doctors. The oncologists are in the lead. The primary care doctors are somewhere behind there. And the psychiatrists and the addiction people are following behind. And part of it's the gravy train. And part of it's just years of, of of government propaganda or their own propaganda internalized. I'm not sure what it is. but So I think humility uh, would go a long way towards um, improving all of this.
0: Thank you for saying that. There are many paths to humility. You had a more colorful path. Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and thank you for sharing about your own recovery journey. I am in... The thing I love the most about mental health and being a mental health provider myself are stories of redemption and the journeys to redemption. And so your experience of uh, being in recovery and then also being a proponent of cannabis use in healthy ways. um, Because earlier on you were talking about cannabis use and contraindications who who, uh, starting slow and going low and slow as you're raising the dose. I mean, these are all very thoughtful, careful methods for using cannabis and in medical care. And so I appreciate that as well. I think humility gives you a broader landscape for looking at how to implement cannabis use, and then also a better relationship with your patients so that they'll be honest with you when they have a positive or a negative reaction. I mean, I can imagine if folks have a negative reaction and their provider is judgmental that they won't want to describe the medical reaction because then they won't ever get it again if it's helping them in other ways. I really appreciate that. I appreciate your, your charge for humility. It's something that I really value and care. What recommendations do you have for older adults who are interested in trying cannabis for the first time? You know, there are edibles, there's smoking, there's vaping, there are concerns if you smoke, that's going to hurt your lungs. Some folks have lung conditions, so they might not like COPD. And so I, I, what are your thoughts about that? So if there's an older adult who wants to try cannabis to see if it helps with whatever, what would you recommend?
1: Well, first of all, it it depends a little bit what state they're in because in some states it's illegal and you don't want them to get in trouble with the law. Like the AARP came out in favor of medical cannabis if you're in a state where it's legal. So if you're in a state where it's not legal, I would get involved and agitate until it's legal because it should be legal. It's absolutely ridiculous. Um, And um, ideally you should work with your doctor um, some doctors know a lot more about it than others. And unfortunately, some doctors would just play the tape that they've been playing for the last 80 years. This is no medical use. It's harmful, blah, blah, blah. So if your doctor's not helpful, your doctor's not helpful. But some doctors are helpful. So see if your doctor's helpful. And if your doctor is helpful, he or she, that would be wonderful. Or there are medical cannabis specialists in, in most states. Um, some of them charge a ton of money and don't do much. Some of them are really helpful genuinely helpful. So see if you could find a helpful medical cannabis specialist or see if your doctor is helpful because it would be much better to work with a medical cannabis specialist or a helpful doctor. Now, then it depends if you've had a a lot of experience using it recreationally in the past, say like in the 60s, you smoked it a lot. Then it's not that much of a leap to start to go to a dispensary, get some and start using it on your own you can figure out whether to smoke it. We don't recommend smoking it because it's not great for your lungs. The, if you need to inhale it, the best way is to grind up flour, uh, put it in a device that heats it, and then take a, a puff or two from there. Because, you know, if you smoke it, you incinerate everything at like 1,100 degrees Celsius, and you get the carbon monoxide and the everything, all the chemicals, the benzene, whatever. Um, And you really only need it to go up to three or 400 degrees Celsius to extract the cannabinoids. And then you don't actually smoke all the crap. So um, we recommend the safest way inhalationally is just to get one of those machines, not those vape cartridges that have all those chemicals in them, but just a machine that heats it up. So you grind up the flour, which you get this at the dispensary, no pesticides, no fungus, no heavy metals, no lead. and you put it in a little machine that heats it up, and then you take a puff or two off that. Very safe. Um, and you don't get any of the, any of the, um, the bad stuff because you're just heating it up to three or four hundred degrees. You're not burning it or smoking it. Or you could just take a tincture under your tongue or put it in a drink. If you put it under your tongue, it takes 20 to 45 minutes to work. Um, again, you want to start low and go slow. But that's a very gentle way to do it. Just put a little tincture under your tongue. You can get a tincture at any dispensary. You know, for medical use, we usually recommend, you know, have a lot of CBD and just a little bit of THC to start, just so you don't get like super high. And the CBD works really well for the sleep, the pain, and the insomnia, which is what most people use it for anyways, medically. So usually people get like, you know, one to four THC to CBD and just take a drop or two under their tongue or in a drink. Or people can get a very low dose edible, uh, but again, the smallest possible dose, and then take half of that. And then if that doesn't work, try a little bit more the next night, but be super conservative about that because you just don't want to take too much. The, the big mistake that everybody makes, um, and I mean everybody, well, not anybody that will listen to this, and none of my patients have made this mistake yet because I browbeat them, but is um, you take, when you take an edible, it takes like up to an hour and a half to kick in. So people eat some and then they're very excited for something to happen and nothing happens after like 45 minutes. So they take another dose and then in like two or three hours, they're like way too high because the first dose kicks in and the second dose kicks in. So if you take an edible and nothing happens, wait to the next day to take a bigger dose. Don't take, the next dose the same day because sometimes it takes a long time for it to absorb so you just don't take more than one dose on the same day no matter what um so again if you start low and go slow and then finally there's um there's topicals that you could rub on um those are very good for like muscular type things i mean topicals are excellent um because they don't have any psychoactive effects You can make your own topicals, actually, um, and it's less expensive than the stuff in the store. There's nothing magical about it. You just, um, the recipes you can get online. You can make your own tinctures, too. It's actually uh, pretty easy to make. I was making one for a friend, um, and they're actually really easy to make as well. So a lot of the stuff you can make much more cheaply yourself than buying it in the store, and they're kind of fun to make.
0: I am really naive around um, cannabis use, and... I'll I'll share a story about my mom who is not naive, and she um, she started using. I don't, I'll check in with her and see if she, she's okay with this. My sharing this, but um, she was using high doses of opioids and had a horrible quality of life for so many years, and really was like. And, it, and she struggled throughout her life with many um, mental health and medical challenges, and then later in life she just struggled so much medically and was in so much pain and couldn't tolerate food, had a peg tube at one point because she could not inject, like take anything orally. She would vomit everything up. And then, and she had never used cannabis or marijuana much when I was growing up. And then she now lives in Mendocino County in California, which is um, cannabis favorable, or maybe it's even legal there. It's in California. So I'm guessing, but um, this was before it was legal. And she started using marijuana. She's living a better quality. This is anecdotal. I don't know if this, uh, but she's living, she's no longer using opioids. She's able to eat. She doesn't have a peg tube. She's enjoying her life more. She's really stable. Also opioids just affected her mood at just, it was awful for her. Um, her quality of life is hundred times better. She's more enjoyable to be around. She's enjoying life more. I'm just, if it was cannabis and I have to check with her because it was correlated. It was around the same time that she stopped using opioids and started using marijuana.
1: But her life is so different. Oh, and I, of course it was the cannabis. I mean, this happens. I've seen this happen in hundreds of patients. The opiates and the cannabis are about equally effective for the pain, but the opiates destroy, eat up your quality of life. And the cannabis is either neutral or it enhances it. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm so glad to hear that. It, it's yeah. like you get your mom back. And that's yeah. what cannabis does to people. That's why people are so enthusiastic about it, because it actually gives them their life back.
0: And she got herself back. Yeah, like she was the best parts of her came back, which is wonderful. And I had my own judgments about it. I was not, you know, I had this self-righteous sort of framework in thinking about it. And now like learning more about it and hearing from you today. And also I asked her a couple of weeks ago, what was the shift for her in her own quality of life? And she was saying it was getting off all of those heavy duty medications. And she didn't say it was necessarily cannabis, but around the same time is when she also started using marijuana regularly and still does and still is enjoying her life. But
1: would I- would big coincidence. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, but, and so it's helping me, honestly, this, my own journey in humility to give her some more grace in her own journey and figuring out what works for her and her body and using substances that are less harmful and helping her in her quality of life. So I, I appreciate what you're sharing today because it's helping me and giving my mom some more grace. Thank you for that.
1: Well, I can't tell you how many people have found that. Um, I mean, it's exactly what we were talking about like 15 minutes ago. Um, And believe me, your mom is not alone. I used to um, joke about how I could navigate to my dad's apartment uh, by closing my eyes and just sniffing out the window of my car because you could smell the cannabis smoke from miles away. So, (laughs) That's funny. One time I was, this was when I was more
0: self-righteous and I was younger too. This is probably 15 years ago, but- I I brought a boyfriend home to meet my mom. And my mom, uh, it was like 10 AM and we were going to go have brunch. She was living in Mendocino County at the time. And I was like, okay, mom, it's time to go. We're going to go to brunch. And she's like, okay, let me just finish getting ready. And she sits down (laughs) on the couch and she pulls out a bong and she starts hitting the bong. And she, and I'm like mortified standing at the front door. And I'm like, mom, what are you doing? And then she looks at me and she's just innocent and says, Oh, I'm sorry. Where are my manners? Would you like some? (laughs) And so anyway, that is my mom too.
1: Uh, Who got along with my dad really well.
0: (laughs) She would have. And Carl Sagan. I'm sure.
1: I'm sure. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Okay. So now, so just to be clear, which older adults should stay away from cannabis or marijuana?
1: Well, I would say that, um, you know, obviously if you have like severe respiratory problems, you shouldn't smoke it. That's sort of no brainer. And, um, you should just be very careful if you have delirium, confusion, or cognitive impairment, you just have to be super careful. I wouldn't say you necessarily have to stay away from it completely, but you should work with someone. You shouldn't just like go to the dispensary and go crazy. And, um, you know, with, with psychosis, um, you know, that's a, that's a contraindication. Um, again, the CBD is fine. People use CBD to treat psychosis, but the THC can aggravate it. So I would say with psychosis, you'd want to be careful. Mm-hmm. What about seizures? Well, they use CBD to treat seizures. And now they're looking more and more at cannabis to treat seizures. Um, but again, the CBD can also raise your anti-epileptic Levels, so um, I would just say work with your doctor. I don't seizures aren't really a contraindication, but you do want to you do want to work with your doctor on that one. But seizures they can help the seizures. Uh, cannabis doesn't cause seizures, but it could hypothetically affect the levels of the anti-epileptic medication. So I would just work with your doctor on that one. But I, I don't think seizures are really a reason not to use it. I, you just have to be cognizant of the medications you're on.
0: How would somebody go about in a in a cannabis uh legal state go about finding a cannabis-friendly, helpful, you called it a cannabis helpful doctor?
1: Well, um it depends on the state. I mean, uh, you know, some states are, you know, have very well-developed medical cannabis programs to the extent where it's virtually legal. Uh, and other states have like the most rudimentary ones where it's like in name only just so they can like say they've done something to quell public pressure. So it's hard to generalize. It really depends on like which state you're in, you know, whether it's like a, I guess a Texas versus a New York. But um, you know, I would start by start by Googling, or, you know, there's always like your local normal chapter, National Organization of Reform of Marijuana Laws or Marijuana Policy Project. You know, there are these advocacy organizations that could probably set you up with friendly local physicians. Or you can just Google medical marijuana doctor in um, Texas. Uh, You know, the doctors that are there are probably, you know, advertising and trying to make a living doing it because they're probably doing that instead of regular medical practice. So I think it's, they're probably pretty findable.
0: Now, what is the biggest objection that you see from medical and mental health providers with cannabis use? Well,
1: the biggest objection is that there aren't like standardized doses, products, and um instructions which i think is a legitimate you know complaint like if i and but it also at the same time does require the humility that we were talking about earlier like it um if i were you're my patient if i were to give you a cholesterol medication i would prescribe 10 milligrams of lipitor but if i um were to give you medical cannabis i'd make some suggestions and then Write your certificate, and then you go to the dispensary, and then you talk to the bud tender, and you basically have my suggestions in mind, but you do whatever you wanted. So that involves like more patient autonomy and seeding of control. So on the one hand, I think that's a good thing, and doctors have to get used to that. On the other hand, I can understand how that does feel sort of um, uncomfortable for physicians who are used to saying. You know, take five milligrams of this, take ten milligrams of that, and it would be easier if there were standardized products. You know, it would be easier if I could say, take two milligrams of this type with five milligrams of CBD for six days and see if you know. So there is like a really sciencey type way of doing things that we don't have um, control over um, when we're prescribing medical cannabis. So, on the again, on the one hand, I think. That's part of the humility that caregivers need when they're approaching medical cannabis and why it's so appealing to patients, because it does involve a lot of trial and error on the part of the patients, which is part of why it's appealing to patients. But on the other hand, I think it does highlight sort of a legitimate concern and gripe on the part of the physicians, which is um, there is like a lack of standardization and protocol. And so it is sort of like, oh, you have a headache, go for it. Go to the dispensary and try some marijuana. And it could be a lot more standardized and regimented than that. So I think a compromise could be worked out between the two extremes of like, talk to the bud tender, do whatever you want with my vague suggestions. And, you know, here's like exactly what to do, you know, from above by the doctor. There certainly could be a a middle path between the two.
0: Yes. And that there's no regulation in pharmacy. You know, you go to the pharmacy, the pharmacy has also a license and regulations.
1: Right. And they're ed- they're really educated, the pharmacist. So the pharmacist could say, oh, no, that interacts with this. And they'd call the doctor's office. Whereas, you know, a lot of us are, are recommending that the people at the dispensary should have some minimum training where they don't at all. It's more like, I always get in trouble when I say this with the cannabis community, but it's always like, oh, you know, my friend's sister took this for a different, you know, some type of headache at a Grateful Dead concert and it got better. So why don't you try this? And, you know, that's not really how like medicine is supposed to be practiced. There should be some basic training for the bud tenders. And I really believe in that. And they don't think there should be, but I, I think there should be, if they're going to be in a position of giving medical advice or they shouldn't be giving medical advice. It, it's as simple as that. You know, there, there's not, they're not paid as highly as pharmacists. They're not going to, you know, and, the cannabis industry is making a lot of money. Certainly they can pay for the training. Um, Or if the state requires it, the state could pay for it. I don't think the bud tenders should have to pay for it. They don't get paid that much, but you know, there should be some training. They shouldn't be allowed to just say, Oh dude, try this strain for fibromyalgia. I heard it's good. That's a little bit dangerous. I mean, it's not that dangerous because it's cannabis like no one's ever overdosed on it. But at the same time, it, I could see why it makes doctors nervous. Sure. Yeah.
0: Especially with, um, interaction effects of medications, especially in older adults, because that's one of the the most common challenges in older adult medicine or geriatric medicine are medication interactions without cannabis. And so I can imagine with cannabis also there
1: there might be some similarities overlap. Imagine if each dispensary had like a, a pharmacist who was also trained in like cannabis medicine. So that would that, be so cool. That would be ideal because they would understand the medicine interactions. They would understand the different strains of cannabis and that would work out really well. So that's the, you know, if it were legal, if it were legal federally, then we could start doing things like this and it would work out. It would be safer for everybody. A couple of states, they need to have a pharmacist, but I think it's really expensive and most places don't. But I think that would be a really good idea. So where can people find you? So um, I could be found at petergrinsman.com and people can buy my book about, um, opiate addiction in physicians or they could sign up for in Massachusetts for marijuana uh, certification or for coaching said you coaching or health and wellness coaching, or they could follow me on Twitter um, at Peter, Peter underscore Grinspoon. So
0: wonderful. Well, I'll link to all of these things in the show notes on the podcast. And I just can't thank you enough for your time and the education that you're sharing with me and my listeners and just broadly to other mental health medical providers who you know a lot of older adults are using cannabis not a lot of older adults are sharing it readily in their in their medical and mental health appointments so if we make it a little more easy to talk about um it'll be healthier for everybody i really thank you very much Oh, absolutely thanks for the great conversation If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe so you'll be the first to know when new episodes are released. And then leave a review. Subscriptions and reviews help people to find this show. In wrapping up, it's important to share that the ideas expressed in this episode are mine alone, and that information shared does not take the place of licensed medical or mental health care. We'll see you next week, same time, same place. Lots of love to you and your family. Bye for now. Lena, do you think aging is scary? No. No? Why not? it makes us happy. Aging makes us happy? Yeah, I want to be
1: bigger and taller.